You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. I always struggle on how to get everybody's attention, but somebody lost $30. Uh, if you know that you had a 20 and a 10 and it fell on the floor, it's probably yours. Otherwise, I'll just put it in the offering basket. Um, okay, no takers. Um, well, welcome uh, again to our forum. Uh, we do this about once a month or so. Um, and uh, we started these just because the 5 o'clock doesn't have a consistent... Uh, uh, education hour attached to it, um, and uh, we also want an opportunity for fellowship. So it's accomplishing both those goals of we really do hope that you all get to know each other better uh, these evenings. After the formal event, feel free to stick around for a little while. Um, but also uh, just to either bring in a guest uh, speaker or to, to come in and teach uh, about once a month on a, on a topic that we hope is interesting to you. Uh, tonight we have a guest, uh, Todd Billings. Uh, who wrote this book, Rejoicing and Lament. The subtitle is Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ. And some folks are at that table back there uh, with some uh, copies for sale if you're uh, interested in picking one up. But uh, if we sell out, of course, you could probably uh, catch it online. Um, but there, I see there are still several copies left. Um, we have some upcoming events. As I said, we're trying to do these about once a month. In March, the day of uh, Palm Sunday, March 25th, we'll have Fleming Rutledge. Some of you maybe have heard of her. She's an Episcopal minister uh, and theologian. Um, she's spoken recently at the Mockingbird conferences and wrote a book on the crucifixion. Uh, in April, we'll have a guy named uh, Craig Glassick. Uh, he's going to talk to us about how to love your church on Sunday. How to love your church on Sunday. He's coming from Australia. He'll be with us for a few days, and I've asked him... Uh, to, to come here and speak at the forum. And then in May, on the day of Pentecost, uh, May 20th, uh, Bethany uh, Rushing and I and Rebecca Graber are putting together a class with some folks on storytelling, uh, giving testimonies. It's really Bethany. It's not, I'm, I'm just sort of on the side. Uh, but Bethany and, and Rebecca putting together a class with some folks on how to give testimonies. And we're gonna we're gonna have a showcase storytelling on May 20th with all these people in the class. So if you're interested in being in the class, it'll be Thursday morning starting when, Bethany? Do we know? Sometime in April. Stay tuned, okay? Uh, by the time uh, we have Fleming's event, we'll be able to, to give you specific information. But if that does interest you, please do talk to, to Bethany. Um, uh, and we have an announcement from Zach and Annie about an album that they're producing. Yeah, yeah so we're, I, it's almost, it's going to feel a little commercially, but this is kind of an announcement both to tell you what's going on, but also because there's a unique way that uh, we want you to be involved, and Annie's going to tell you about it. This is my intern, Annie, by the way. I don't know if you know. This is intern Annie. Say hello, Annie. Um, since I got here, almost, I mean, it'll be rounding out in a few short months, uh, two years since I've been here. Uh, it's been a big desire of mine for the five o'clock community and what we do musically to amass a sort of body of our own musical literature, you know, um, that kind of helps us identify our community a little bit. And uh, I think it's really important if you've got artists around who are recordable to record something. 
And within the last few years, we've been singing a lot of great music together, some of which has not been recorded because it's been written by us. And we want to be able to put that down and uh, lay that down for you all and for our community, both as a marker, because I really believe that uh, when churches create artifacts like an album or art or something else, it, it becomes a way of helping us all figure out what God is doing in our midst a little better. So, for instance, the song we sang tonight, I Sought the Lord, is, uh, is from the Episcopal hymnal, uh, that hymn is, but it's our tune. So it's something that's helping us understand who we are a little better. So in a few short months, actually, we're going to uh, gather a bunch of our musicians and record in the round on the chancel on the, in the nave. Uh, but here's where we want a little bit of your help. And so uh, I turn it over to Annie to describe that help to you. Okay. Um, so we have a lot of songs that we've written or collectively have put together for this record that's coming out. Um, and we really want this to be a project not that the Advent band is putting together, but we want it to be um, the Advent community coming together. And so when people see the see the record, they don't say, oh, like Zach Hicks put out a record. They say, oh, the Advent has a record and it's a great resource for them. So we want you guys to be a part of us putting it together. And what that's going to look like is in the coming weeks, we're going to be sending out um, an email with a link. And it'll have um, just a big list of demos of recordings of the songs um, that we're choosing from to put to like be on the album and so what you can do it'll be like in a survey format that we'll figure out and you'll be able to vote um, on which songs you think should be on the album and we'll end up having around six to eight I think we decided on um, so yeah just be on the lookout for that email in the coming weeks because we're really excited about y'all getting involved with us yeah. and I, I should say too uh, I work a lot with our organist and choir director Fred Teardo and it is exciting that since he's been here, they haven't recorded an album either. And uh, this is the year of the recordings because they're also recording an awesome choir and organ uh, album as well. And so it's just a wonderful year of music making at the Advent. And we're grateful for really all the encouragement that you've given our musicians and our team. And uh, we're grateful for the songs that we get to sing together and your voice in that. So thank God for you. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, if you uh, didn't get the email about the event tonight, uh, that means you're not on our list for these. And that would be a great uh, way for us to send out that, that link that they're talking about. So if you would like to receive that email, let Brandon Bennett know. <laughs> he knew I was going to say that. Um, so let's uh, pray real quick before uh, Brandon and Todd come up here and speak. Heavenly Father, for our time together, Lord, I give you thanks for this meal and our time of fellowship. Bless us. And uh, for Todd's presence with us, Lord, we rejoice. Uh, we rejoice and lament and help us uh, to understand exactly what he has to say, Lord, to find, um, to find joy in exactly where we are, even in suffering. And for um, many who are suffering with cancer or loved ones that we have who are suffering with cancer in our midst, uh, we pray for them as well, Lord, for all our needs. Uh, we hand them off to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks. Well, good evening, Todd. If you want to uh, come up here, please. Um, I want to welcome you all again. There are a lot of people. Glad to see everyone. I uh, want to welcome you again to the forum. Um, if you haven't met me, my name is Brandon Bennett. I am the young adult and college minister here at the Advent. Um, 
And if you haven't been here to the forum, uh, this is a place, uh, we've done these before, and um, Matt said we're going to have uh, one again in March with Fleming Rutledge. This is a space where we can, in an informal environment, have just some good discussion and um, yeah, talks about the Christian faith, various issues. And just a couple of housekeeping comments, since there are a lot of new people that I see. Bathrooms are over that way, underneath a sign that says refectory, which is a fancy word for cafeteria, if you're curious. And don't be shy, you know, Olive Garden style, when you're here, your family. Please feel free to get up and uh, get food during our time. So don't feel like you got to wait. Um, well, I want to introduce to you Todd Billings. Um, and I want to ask Todd to really introduce himself. Um, it really is a privilege to be sitting here with Todd. I remember a few years ago, I'd never heard of Todd. And I was looking in the library for a book to help me on a seminary paper. And I ran across this random little book uh, that I needed, and it sounded exactly what I needed. Um, uh, and I mentioned his name to my professor, and he knew him, and uh, it was so good. And I realized then that I needed to get everything I could from Todd because, um, I don't know, he, I think he has a real gift for bringing together a sort of pastoral, down-to-earth kind of insight with just a real, true theological gift um, I think he helps me be a better reader of scripture, a better evangelist, a better pastor, quite frankly. He gives me language um, for things as I teach and I talk. So, so I'm really grateful to be here um, interviewing Todd. It's a real privilege. Um, so Todd, uh, for those of us in the room who haven't heard of you before and um, don't know much about your story, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. It's an honor to be here and to be followed up by Fleming Rutledge, who's a wonderful preacher and theologian. Um, yeah, so I'm a seminary professor. I write books to help people with their seminary papers, um, like Brandon. <laughs> um, and um, I come from West Michigan. That's where I teach at a seminary called Western Theological Seminary. It's in the Reformed tradition, kind of Presbyterian tradition. Um, can you, do I need to put the mic up closer or is that, okay. Um, so, how far back do you want me to go? Just a brief, just a brief word, just so we know who you are, what you do. Yeah, sounds good. So, um, yeah, I'm called to help train ministers, and um, so I went to Fuller Seminary in California um, for my own training, and then Harvard for my doctoral work, and then the last 12 years I've been in Michigan. I have written on various topics related to union with Christ, interpreting the Bible as scripture, and I was working on a book um, actually on the Lord's Supper when um, I was surprisingly diagnosed with cancer. I didn't see it coming at all. Um, I'd had problems with my immune system, was getting sick a lot, and so my doctor had given me some tests that he actually didn't 
tell me the full story about why he was giving me those tests. But um, it was in 2012. Um, my wife and I um, had successfully adopted from Ethiopia. We had spent I've spent a couple years teaching in Ethiopia and East Africa. We have strong connections there. We had actually taught there together in 2009. She has a PhD in Old Testament, so we're a very nerdy, nerdy household. Um, and so my daughter was three, and then my son was um, one year old. And yeah, it just came out of the blue, um, where on the one hand, I was kind of assuming in a fashion that a lot of Americans, particularly a white middle class American like myself, that I'm part of this storyline that will start winding down in its 70s or 80s or 90s. Um, and then suddenly, with this cancer, the future becomes very uncertain. So um, uh, within a week or so, I started um, fairly intensive chemotherapy, a lot of steroid treatment. Um, with that, I had a stem cell transplant four months after that, where I was in the hospital for a month and then quarantined for three to four months. And it was really during that time that I wrote much of this book because I couldn't be around people <laughs> with a stem cell transplant. Um, one of the things that they do is basically they annihilate your immune system. <laughs> um, um, they take out some blood and set it aside and then I received a chemotherapy which is a mustard gas derivative. Um, and so it just kills everything good and bad in inside your um, inside your bones to put it simply and in your immune system and then they put the stem cells back in your body and they hope and usually turns out that you generally start to build up an immune system again over the next three or four months so I had a lot of time alone and um, yeah, and then I continue on chemotherapy now. I'm grateful that it's been five years. I've had other friends with the same disease who died within a year, two years. But then there are also some with the disease who have lived 10, 15 years. It's very unpredictable. I get a cancer test every three months. Um, and so, yeah, it's a part of our life now, part of the life of my family. Um, just the unpredictability of it. Also, I just, I have, you know, fatigue and pain um, just from the chemotherapy, ongoing chemo treatments. But I am able to work two-thirds time. I'm grateful for that. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful to be alive. God didn't owe me a long life. Um, didn't owe me the 39 years before I was um, diagnosed. And so each, each breath is a gift. All right, so thank you. In your book, I think it's chapter one or chapter two, you describe, um, you describe just after the diagnosis, you describe it um, like a fog, walking in a fog. Can you talk about that a little bit more, about that experience? 
Um, yeah, just elaborate on that for us, please. Yeah, maybe I'll just do that briefly. It's in some ways it's similar to what I just described, but it's I realized after the diagnosis how much we expect about the future in our day-to-day -day life. And it was as if I was walking down a hallway and there were all sorts of lights going off on these rooms, on these side rooms in the hallway, and I hadn't been I hadn't known that I were assuming that they would be on. <laughs> so, you know, when we had a meeting with the myeloma specialist um, for my cancer, he gives me certain numbers in terms of the prognosis, and I'm immediately thinking, you know, okay, so chances are I'm not going to live long enough to see my daughter graduate from high school or, you know, even make it into high school or, or things like that. Um, and so a lot of things that I just took for granted became foggy <laughs> and became um, um, unclear. And sometimes we say to someone who has had something like this happen, well, it's good because it makes you live day by day. And there is something good about that. But um, ultimately, we can't just live by day by day. There is we're oriented toward the future in some way. And so I think I just came to realize when it came foggy, how much we are oriented that way. All right, so in your book, you give us, and I think this is surprising um, for me and for maybe most of us, you give us permission to lament, to, uh, to even complain, we might say to God about um, these sort of things that we're wrestling with. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that feels wrong to us, naturally, for some reason. So can you elaborate on, so you, so you give us permission to lament and to complain. Elaborate on that for me, please. I think what was key for me was realizing that to lament in a biblical sense is actually an act of trust, an act of hope, and of even of worship. Um, I had read the Psalms prayerfully so many times growing up, but I tended to skip over those angry and grieving lament psalms. Um, in fact, that's the most widespread type of psalm in the Bible. It's somewhere around a third of the psalms are lament psalms. But um, on the one hand, when we think about complaining to God, I think there is a wrong way to do that, and that's like the children of Israel in the wilderness, God gives the manna, God provides you know, one thing after another, and they complain in a way where they are turning to Baal or turning to other gods. And so um, in contrast to that, the psalmist again and again, and Jesus <laughs> repeatedly, is praying the psalms, um, and in those laments, they focus and almost fixate on the promise of God, the covenant promises of God. So when Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's praying this psalm on the cross. But the reason that the psalmist even uses those words is because the covenant Lord has promised not to forsake his people. And so that's precisely what the psalm of lament 
in a sense, throws back at God. Right now, it doesn't feel like your promise is coming true. God, please be faithful to your promise. You know, where are you? Why have you hidden your face from me? The psalmist repeatedly uses phrases like that. Why have you hidden your face from me? Again, the reason the psalmist speaks that way, it's not just venting or something like that, though I think God can handle our venting. (laughs) Um, But it's because the Lord has promised to show his face to his people in, in the covenant promise. And so, in a sense, if we really take God's covenant promises seriously, when our lives feel like they're a shambles, and it doesn't look like the kind of covenant flourishing that we hoped for, we'll come to God and lament. And I think even when our lives don't feel like they're a shambles, they give us a pattern and a way of what it means to live our whole lives before the Lord of the universe. And rather than just coming to God when we're happy, when we have grief and despair and anger, I mean, those are very prominent in the Psalms. Um, We sometimes may feel those emotions need to stay out of the sanctuary or out of the prayer room. Um, Or maybe we think that we need to get those emotions in check before we go to God. Well, that's not at all what the psalmist does. The psalmist brings them before God. And the general pattern of these psalms is that it does end with a declaration of trust. We don't have a sense from these psalms that anything has changed in the external situation. I mean, there are psalms where the person is basically sick unto death. There are psalms where the person is being pursued by enemies. And as far as we know, the person is still really sick and is still being pursued by enemies. But at the end of of most of these psalms, it ends with this declaration of trust. Nevertheless, I trust in you. You are the, the God of all generations before you know, and, and, and praising God for being the Lord who we small creatures are, are not, um, even if we don't see it and moving in trust. Um, but I think it's important that we don't just skip to the final verse of those psalms because the whole psalm is actually a process that we need to go through, whether we are feeling anguish or, you know, contentment. Um, There is anguish in the body of Christ at all times, and we join Jesus and we join others in the body of Christ in praying um, these psalms. Yeah, that's helpful. So in worship, uh, it's good to be honest about ourselves and um, to be oriented to reality. Yeah, so that's helpful. So you've kind of already answered this, um, but it's clear just from reading your book and hearing your uh, answer just now, the Bible has played a huge part in your wrestling with this. So how is the Bible, um, and I think you've somewhat answered the Psalms in particular, but how has the Bible and the biblical storyline been so helpful and so impactful to you as you've wrestled with this really tough reality? Well, I mean, the Psalms are have been kind of like the companion that goes with me where nobody else is willing to go. 
Um, people say all sorts of things, and they really intend the best. And so, I, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for their kindness. But often, when you say something like, "Yeah, I have cancer," or "Yeah, I have this type of cancer," the first story you will hear is, "Oh, yeah, my aunt died of that cancer," or um, "So and so tried this special cancer treatment." this special diet and she's had three months that are really good, you know, with this again and again and again. The the psalmist does not sugarcoat things, but brings it before the presence of the Lord. And then just seeing the ways in which the Psalms are the most quoted are just quoted all over the place in the New Testament. And it's actually Psalms of Lament which are the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. You would, you would sometimes think, oh, Old Testament, you know, that's where we have this earthy sadness and New Testament, it's about joy. Well, there's joy and suffering hand in hand. And um, the psalmists um, have that rejoicing and sorrow in hand in hand. Paul has this very clearly um, a sense of joy in the Lord hand in hand with participation in even in Christ's suffering. Um, and Jesus himself um, has all sorts of aspects of lament that I hadn't noticed before. Um, and so, you know, even the, um, his, when he knocks over the tables at, of the money changers at the temple, in some ways this is a kind of protest lament um, and, of course, um, the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. But from what we know even about Jesus and his community, the, the Psalms would have been woven into their prayer life. And we can, we can see that by the New Testament writers again and again, um, using the Psalms as their framework um, really for the disclosure of the gospel uh, in, in Jesus. So you started to go this way, and I, I really wanted to ask you this tonight. It was um, just kind of weird, actually. I was uh, going through your book again this week just to kind of refresh myself on it, and I got a phone call maybe uh, Wednesday night, I think. I was just throwing together some dinner, and my best friend from college calls me, and he says, I have some sad news. I was diagnosed with leukemia. And... Um, uh, you know, in those moments, even me, who has read the Bible and gone to seminary, I feel powerless, and I don't quite frankly know what to say to people. So help us, and help me especially, how should I pray for someone? How should I, how should I respond? I think that it's both honest, but in some ways good to recognize that you don't have anything to say that can make it better and that you feel powerless because in some sense you are. <laughs> um, what people after a diagnosis like this generally don't want is someone to resolve it in the sense of, oh, well, this is all part of God's perfect plan or this is all, you know, some answer that resolves it for you but won't for your friend. Um, and so actually walking, walking by your friend, 
being present with him and seeing in time what he wants prayer for, I think is is a good start. Um, I mean, it was interesting with even lament that I was talking about. I wasn't the first person who lamented in my situation. I was too busy having chemotherapy treatment and then um, any of you who have been on steroids, you know, <laughs> if you're on steroids and chemo at the same time, um, they put you on 10 times a normal level for one or two days a week, and then they take you off. And so, I mean, I was going, whoa, <laughs> you know, I mean, I couldn't, I was not an expert on how I was. It was actually my friends, my students, and and some people from my church who actually, in a sense, taught me how to pray about my situation, um, to lament, to also petition. Um, so I guess the, uh, the only other thing I would say other than there's, there's, there's not a magic formula other than a sort of quick theological answer is I'm a theologian, I love theology, but that's, that's not the time for it. Um, reading from the Psalms, praying from the Psalms is, is appropriate, I think, pretty much always. Um, asking the person how they want to be prayed for, I think, is always appropriate. Um, but the other thing to realize in terms of what happens in these situations is that if you think of something where, like, in it's like a s series of concentric circles, and at the center of the circle is the person who is um, affected, like your friend and that person's family members, and then a little bit outer might be the person's congregation. A little bit outer might be, you know, more extended relatives. A little bit outer will be acquaintances. One thing that often happens, I've seen it happen again and again, is that you will have an acquaintance go to, like, the spouse or a close friend of the person diagnosed and say, I can't handle this. You know, why is this happening? How could this be? And, I mean, the fact is that everyone affected is dealing with that, and that's completely normal <laughs> to be asking those questions. But in a sense, wherever you are in this circle, try to find support from somebody farther out <laughs> from the circle, in a sense. So when you go, I mean, this may raise theological and, and you know, questions for you, Brandon, that you're struggling with, find someone else to process that with. Um, don't, <laughs> your job is to be present with your friend and not to go to your friend to give your friend another crisis um, to deal with. So that sounds totally obvious once I point it out, but I've seen it again and again as I've gotten to know cancer patients that, um, um, yeah, we, we forget this sort of thing in terms of how to provide support, support to people um, in a broader, in the broader community in which they're surrounded. Yeah, actually, don't you say that, I think it's in the very beginning of your book, you say, wasn't there a girl with Down syndrome, right, who one of the most encouraging things you heard was, her saying to you, God is bigger than your, 
cancer, yeah. right? Um, well, so I, I want to ask you about this because it's a question we all get as we're wrestling with a Christian faith and speaking with uh, non-Christians and even within the church we're asking this. So um, you talk about the problem of evil in your book. So I want to ask the question kind of in a loaded way, not a, a theological way. So um, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, why does God allow suffering? Drum roll, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a level in which we all deal with this on an experiential level, and then there's also a level where we deal with it as thinking persons and at times with non-Christians and, and so forth. Um, let me just say first that on an experiential level, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I wanted to find out the reason. Like, did what, you know, I wasn't a smoker, but what, what caused the cancer? What, what is to blame for this? What could I have done differently? Even if I am the one to blame, I want someone to blame. Because there's some sort of reassurance in getting an explanation, even if it was me who was to blame. And we live in a culture like that. I think I just imbibed that from our culture. There's someone to sue. There's someone to hold responsible when things happen that don't make any sense. Well... With my cancer, the honest answer is they have no idea what causes it. <laughs> and as far as they know, it, it's not, doesn't have, the cause doesn't have anything to do with, you know, any sort of lifestyle or diet or anything like that. Um, and I think there's something similar going on when we face this question of the problem of evil and why would God allow evil and even horrendous evil in his good creation, the creation that he called very good. Now, of course, a partial answer is, well, sin. <laughs> um, but it's not a sort of answer that totally that shuts down the questions. Why would God allow us freedom to sin if it was going to end up with so many horrors? Um, and then on a concrete level, um, when you have a, a particular tragedy um, or a, a diagnosis like this happen, is this something that just slips through God's fingers? Um, um, I, I had some theologians who I read at this time who basically said they thought it was reassuring to say that you know God is against all sorts of evil, is against all sorts of decay, is just against cancer, and he can't do anything about it. <laughs> like, he's suffering with us, but he can't do anything about it. Um, well, that's a way of solving the problem by saying that God is not all-powerful. Um, so, you know, um, evil can exist in the world, and 
God can be good, but God is not all-powerful, so that's how we get a sort of rational, you know, resolution. But as I wrestled with this and returned to Scripture with this, um, I think I found a pretty clear answer. And the answer is that an answer to that question is beyond human wisdom. It's not that the Bible doesn't address the question. It does. (laughs) And as it does, it says it's simply beyond our human understanding and that we're we're, we're making a mistake when we come up with a theory as to why this evil happens happens to happen. So in particular, in the book of Job is where in the biblical canon this is dealt with. And Job's friends give all sorts of reasons as to why Job's terrible suffering has come. And the, friend, the, the reasons of Job's friends are actually quite biblical in some sense. I mean, they, they draw them from certain parts of the biblical witness, but then they use it in a way that the Bible never does, which is to say, this is the reason that this suffering person basically deserves what they got. And that's, that's not the way that the Old Testament uses that. That's not the way that Jesus, you know, what, when, when um, people come to Jesus, what sin did this, this man or his parents do? Jesus does not look at someone who is suffering and say, oh, this, this happened um, because the person's parents sinned or because the person sinned. Um, but neither Jesus nor the end of the book of Job give us a human answer about why God would allow this. Um, At the end of the book of Job, after all of Job's pleading to make his case before God, the Lord comes and gives him a theophany, an appearance of the Lord himself. And in this appearance, the Lord asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. Where were you at the foundations of the world? Where were you when I created the gazelle and lists all, all sorts of you know, amazing, wonderful things of the creation and basically saying, Job, you are small. You have no idea the sorts of things that you are asking about. Um, and so I think there's a way, though, in which in our lives we need to keep asking this kind of question, and that is, we need to keep a sense that this world of suffering, injustice, unbelief is not the way things are supposed to be. I worked for, when I was at Harvard, I was on staff for, for five years with a homeless shelter. And one thing I noticed is that like, even as we deal with homelessness and as a social issue, we often come up with explanations, oh, you know, Um, this is the reason this person is homeless, this and this and this and this. And those reasons, those are important things to think through, but sometimes we give those reasons as a way to justify not responding. And there's a certain sense in which when we see and encounter suffering and unbelief and injustice, it should strike us as an open wound. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so this is why Jesus asks us pray, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven because it's not fully happening right now. So where I end up with on the problem of evil is, is on the one hand saying the world is in God's hands. I, I, you know, it did not slip through God's fingers when I was diagnosed with cancer. But on the other hand, was my cancer God's creational intention from the foundations of the world? No. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in this in-between time where the creation is good, yet corrupted. <laughs> and we are longing and aching and lamenting in hope for the age to come. Um, and so in the midst of it, I think on an experiential level, we need to keep on asking the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, but not so that we can get an answer so that we can you know, stop caring about the suffering around us and not so that we can get, yeah, but it's, it's actually an open question that the psalmist himself asks. Yeah, and your your continual refrain throughout the book, I think, is we are taken, the gift of Christianity is, the gift of the gospel it gives us is um, we are taken out of our individual stories and put into Christ's larger story, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you want to say anything more about that, or should we move on? I didn't know if I was opening up thoughts. Okay. Um, well, uh, one of your chapters that I found really helpful. It was called Joining the Resistance. Uh, and I think this goes really for all of us in all of our work. You say that our Christian life should be one of compassionate protest. Um, tell us about that, please. In some ways, it extends upon the theme I was just talking about in that we're part of the resistance to the powers and principalities of this world, of the current reign and temporary reign of sin and death. Um, Christ is indeed king, but his, his kingdom is not um, uncontested. Um, not all knees have bowed um, to, this, um, to this king yet. And so I think that prayer, um, the Christian life, has this act of resistance that is not just looking to change the world in some swoop. Um, I mean, I remember I went to a Christian college, Wheaton College, and we'd have so many chapel speakers come in and say, you know, it's up to your generation to go change the world, to fix everything that, you know, our generation got wrong. And, you know, of course, yeah, we made a mess of things like everybody else. Um, I think it's actually almost the opposite of that in the sense that we are called into action, but we're not called into action to sort of cling to some utopian future like, um, you know, certain communist revolutionaries were in the 20th century where, you know, whatever it took to gain power, um, you gain power and then you have that utopian future. Instead, we're actually called to, in a sense, move toward 
the suffering, move toward the unbelief, and bear witness in a way that says, this is not the way things are, are supposed to be. This is not going to be the final word. So let me give you an example, an example I use in the book. Um, a friend of mine was a chaplain at a children's hospital, and in this children's hospital there were a lot of um, children with terminal illnesses. And, you know, when she first started there, she thought, wow, this is such a ministry, and had, had kind of a change-the-world type framework. I'm, I'm making such a difference. But after being there a few years, she's like, these, these kids, they just keep on dying. I go in, I build a relationship, I change their bandages, and they just die. And it's not making the world a better place. What, 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 what difference is this making? In a sense, it's in a hidden place. This is not something that, you know, she's not taking pictures of these things and posting them on Facebook or whatever people post on now, <laughs> you know, that, you know, oh, this is, you know, some great action that's changing the world. It's, it's hidden. And what my friend said was, keep on going in, keep on caring in a day-to-day way on a personal level as an act of protest that a world in which young children die of cancer is not the way things are supposed to be. And an act of witness to a king who has a victory such that this will not be the final word. It will not be the final word for these children and will not be the final word for um, our world. Um, well, I want to be sensitive to time. It's already 717. Um, well, I was going to have you read such a good, there was such a good passage on page 31, but since it's 717, and I know you guys are thinking, when is this going to wrap up? Um, I want to hear, uh, hear some of your questions. Uh, we don't have a microphone, so Todd, if you could um, just repeat the question. So does, any, so does anyone have a question for Todd? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yeah, so the question is, do I wish I looked sick rather than healthy? Often I do, actually, because it takes a lot of explaining at times. So, um, I mean, that's, that's a very perceptive question, and it's kind of an odd answer, but... Um, uh, most often, what I've dealt with is just, um, I mean, I'm always immunocompromised. And so, um, uh, yeah, something that made me look a little bit scarier to, you know, if you're um, coughing and have pneumonia or things like that. I've had pneumonia like a dozen times. Um, I don't need pneumonia again. <laughs> um, but I... I look healthy, and then when people see me, it's when I'm not conked out sleeping. Um, I have to, you know, uh, 
take I have to have two or three hours of downtime every afternoon just to survive in a sense um, so often it's yeah you know you're looking you're looking great you're looking just just normal um, and I'll take that that's that's fine but it's 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 not the same and it's not going to be the same um, and that's I think how other other cancer patients would would generally view it Yeah, that's a great question. Have I given thoughts to my future in heaven? Yeah, I'm. I'm. The book I'm writing right now, when I have energy, is on um, cultivating resurrection hope and heavenly hope. Um, and um. Yeah, it's it's something that um, that I've increasingly grown to long for. And um, on the one hand, there's a sense in which just a very simple confession. In 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 my Reformed tradition, we have the Hutterberg Catechism, where the first question and answer says that um, I am not my own but I belong, body and soul, and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In a sense, all of my beliefs about heaven are summed up there, that I am not my own, but belong to Jesus Christ. And since I belong to him, I have hope for new life in him and hope for a body that will not decay, will not be ill. Um, and to, to be honest, at times, um, at times I long for heaven in a way that when I have some friends who want a sort of quick and easy healing, <laughs> that um, like the heavenly hope is so much greater than that. Um, if if I was completely cancer-free tomorrow, um, I mentioned this to a group I spoke to this morning. For one, um, I mean, I would rejoice, and I think God is able to do what he wants. Um, but number two, I would still be on chemo for the rest of my life because even if I don't have any cancer levels with my cancer, doctors assume that it always comes back. And... It generally has. <laughs> um, and so there's still a loss. There's no going back, in a sense. But three, I would still end up with a body that is good, but is falling apart. And um, so there is, there is a deep longing for this rest and for um, the joy of, of, of heaven in that sense. And um, yeah, I, don't, I think I probably haven't experienced that as much as some, some people who have meditated on heaven in their later years, you know, and just really cultivated that in their hearts, but I've, I'm, I'm starting down that journey. <laughs> Uh, 
Maybe time for one more question. Tim? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, when you have a, a, a diagnosis or anything that puts you in direct contact with your own mortality and your own limitations, um, all sorts of things which seemed somewhat important, um, even like following the news. I mean, it's good to be an informed citizen, but <laughs> um, that those became much less important for me, um, and um, yeah, I mean, my wife says at least I've become a better father since my cancer diagnosis. That's not a reason for me having cancer. That's not like a greater good sort of argument, but it does it reprioritizes things. Um, um, so that's true, um, and on the other hand, it's also I think there's can be a danger of, um, I, I mean, I don't want to be on a spiritual pedestal or others who are facing their mortality as if we just always prioritize things rightly. Um, um, we're, uh, we still struggle tremendously in prioritizing things rightly, and um, um, it's just in a little bit different way. So... Um, you know, I'm not always thinking on um, heavenly things and cultivating heavenly hopes. Um, sometimes I'm just figuring out how do I keep myself from getting pneumonia again, <laughs> you know, and it can easily easy become almost fixated with that. Well, that's not something that's really helpful to anyone to, you know, become preoccupied with that. Um, um, so we still struggle with things that are not of eternal, eternal value, um, even though I think actually reflecting on our limitations and reflecting on our mortality and those around us can actually be a spiritual exercise that helps us to reprioritize. And one of the things I actually explore in this book I'm writing right now is how we've pushed um, dying and death to the margins. Um, even in the middle of the 20th century, around 80% of deaths took place in homes. Um, many children would have had the experience of basically caring for a dying person in their household. Um, those things are, have been largely institutionalized and medicalized and I think that our faith is actually often the weaker for it. And we have um, lost, it's very easy for us to live as if we're going to live forever <laughs> without these concrete daily reminders. And so one thing I've done, even with my kids, is um, yeah, we've just started to visit and build relationships with some older people in the congregations, even older people we you know, know we're going to die soon. And actually, the, a man who 
my son calls Grandpa Walters um, um, died just earlier this week. And so we're going to be taking our six-year-old and our eight-year-old to a funeral, to somebody who, you know, they know. And that's intentional um, on, on, on our part. And I hope at least that that can actually be part of their, their spiritual growth in a kind of even a reprioritizing way that you're talking about. Well, Todd, thank you so much for your time and for your reflection. Um, can we can we thank Todd, please? And I see Mr. Goings in the back. I just want to all always acknowledge we are so grateful for the Goings organizing our food. So if you ate tonight, thank Alfred and Sally Goings. I also don't want to forget, um, by the wine bottles, there is a sign-up sheet. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet for a book study. So Todd wrote this book, Rejoicing and Lament, that we've been talking about. And Cindy, over there in the back corner, has a few for sale. So go see Cindy. Um, if you'd like to check out the book, you can purchase it tonight. Um, have Todd sign it, even. I guess you don't mind doing that. Um, and so Michael Weeks, our preacher tonight, he will actually be leading a study, and we can give you some more details. But if you're interested in buying that book, uh, reading it, and getting together with a few people to process it, um, put your name and email and phone number down, and Michael will be in touch with you. Um, well, um, it's time to close. So let's, let's pray as we close. Our Father, we are so grateful for your servant Todd and his time with us this evening and his wrestling with these hard realities with us. Father, we are grateful for the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection hope that we have in him. Father, we long for the day when all things will be made new, when your kingdom is here on earth as it is in heaven. And until that day, we pray, O oh Lord, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. And until then, we also protest and lament and we grieve, recognizing that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so for our friend Todd, I pray, Lord, that you would sustain him as he continues to deal with cancer and the treatments and all the heartaches that come along with it. Lord, I pray now that you would, by your spirit, send us out now to do the work you have given us to do, to bear witness to Jesus Christ in all of life. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.